I want us to read just one verse here in Ephesians chapter 4, and that's verse number 28. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. I want to preach to you this morning on the subject of work. Pastor Bannister said that one of the reasons that my family and I are here is to uh, look at various things on the property and things that either need repaired or fixed or cut down or planted or whatever, and it's going to involve a lot of work. I'm a bivocational minister, I'm the associate there in Winston-Salem, as he said, uh, but I do work outside of the church as well. And as I was considering what to preach when I came here, this topic came to my mind and I began to think more on this subject of work and thought I've never heard a sermon on work. I've never really studied in the Bible uh, in any specific or detailed way what the Bible has to say about work. And I thought, well, this will be this will be a good topic. This will be a good study. And the Lord has really encouraged me and challenged me as I have began to search the scriptures. This is by no way, no means an exhaustive study of the scriptures on this subject, as you'll see in just a few moments with some details that I'll give to you. Um, but it's something that I find quite amazing. You might be surprised to learn that the Bible mentions work or laboring over 900 times. That's a lot of times. Now, what is more amazing than that is if you take all of the times that the Bible mentions worship, praise, and singing, and add all of those together, the Bible mentions work over 200 times more than it mentions worship, praise, and singing. Now that I find quite amazing. I find it amazing because it indicates to me that God places a great deal of importance on work. We know that God places a great deal of importance on our worship, on our praise to him, on our singing praise to him. And if the Lord mentions to us the subject of work, more than he does these other things that we know obviously are important, uh, then it stands to reason that the Lord considers our work to be important as well. Now, you might be here this morning and you might just hate your job. Uh, Monday mornings are not a happy time. It's the stereotype, is it not? Uh, you know, people dread the Monday morning. You can't wait to Friday. And you might hate your job. You might not like the people that you work with. Uh, but, you know, a difficult work environment, obviously, that can be a very hard thing to deal with. Um, I don't like the people I work with. I normally work by myself. And so the guy that I work with often gives me a lot of trouble. And, and I, I can feel your pain. But this morning, I don't plan to preach to you on the subject of interpersonal relationships or anything like that. Um, you might not like your work, and I'm not preaching this morning on knowing the call of God as to what kind of work you're supposed to be engaged in. 
Uh, I would encourage you young people to seriously seek the Lord as to what line of work the Lord would have you pursue. And the Lord does not dangle his will in front of you, um, you know, like this carrot, you know, this, this magic carrot that you have to follow. He's not playing hide and go seek with his will for you. The Lord will make his will very plain uh, if you seek his will. And I would greatly encourage you to seek his will as to what the Lord would have you to do. But that's not my sermon this morning at all. So this morning, I'm going to assume that you're engaged in the work that God has called you to do. Many people have a very wrong idea about work, and especially a wrong idea about what it means to work for the Lord. Uh, This goes way back in church history. Uh, Church history reveals to us that by the third century, and then especially the next century under the reign of Emperor Constantine, when Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire, uh, that really there had been a very marked distinction between the clergy and the laity. And it was a very commonly understood idea that the clergy were the ones who were doing the Lord's work, and everybody else was not doing the Lord's work. Now, you might know that one of the things that Martin Luther in the Protestant Reformation emphasized and really brought to light in a very good way was the value of all work before the Lord, all work in the sight of God. I'll read you one of the things that Martin Luther said. He said, the works of monks and priests, however holy and arduous they may be, Do not differ one whit in the sight of God from the works of the rustic laborer in the field or the woman going about her household tasks. All works are measured before God by faith alone. Thirty years later, John Calvin would say this. According to the scriptural perspective, work becomes a way station of spiritual witness and service. A daily traveled bridge between theology and social ethics. In other words, work for the believer is a sacred stewardship. And in fulfilling his job, he will either accredit or violate the Christian witness. So the reformers were emphasizing that the work of the laborer in the field, the work of the housewife, is work done, rendered as unto the Lord. We'll see much more about this later on, but your work is ultimately an act of worship before the God of heaven. And I'll, I'll seek to prove that to you from the scriptures here in just a moment. But I want to preach to you this morning on the subject of work, and I've entitled the message you may have seen written in the bulletin already, The Theology of Work. Perhaps an interesting title to you as you read that. And again, I can not be exhaustive at all in what the Bible has to say on this subject, but I want to draw your attention really topically to a few particular points that I trust will be encouraging to your own heart. I want you to see, first of all, the example of work. The example of work. Now, I want to talk to you about one of the main characters in Scripture. And I want you to think with me, if you would. One of the main characters that we have, especially in the Old Testament, 
when he is first revealed to us, he's engaged in work. Now, I know I'm the Alex Trebek of, uh, of the youth camp. So, you know, you might, you might be thinking, well, who's he talking about? Who is, who is this person that's introduced to us as someone engaged in work? If your mind went to King David, you're not technically wrong, but that's not who I'm thinking about. Now, King David, when we're first introduced to him, you remember Samuel goes and he, he looks at all of Jesse's kids and, well, no, you're not it. No, not you, not you, not you, not you. Is there anybody else? And Jesse said, well, yeah, my youngest son's out working with the sheep. He's out, he's out tending the sheep. Well, bring him. And it was David, we, we know, the Lord's anointed that Samuel anoints to be the king. A couple verses down in that passage, we see David again out in the field, taking a, a man anointed already to be king out in the field when a man is brought to Saul to play the harp for Saul. David was busy working and had to go be fetched from his job to come and do this. But David is not the the primary example that I'm thinking about here of the one who is the the primary example of a worker, especially in the Old Testament. The very first verse of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When we are first introduced to God in Scripture, Genesis 1.1 does not say, in the beginning, God was seated high and enthroned in majestic splendor. Now, he was, fair enough, but that's not what Genesis 1.1 tells us. Genesis 1.1 reveals to us from the very beginning of Scripture a God who is engaged in work. He's working. You know the commandments of Scripture, the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. And then verse 11 of Exodus 20 gives us some rationale behind that. This is the reason why that pattern is laid out for us. Because in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the seventh day. And hallowed it. So we have this pattern set for us, and the example of that pattern is God Himself. If we can maybe time out from the sermon just a moment and make a little side note, it's interesting in that enunciation of the Ten Commandments to the children of Israel at Mount Sinai that God makes this emphasis on six days shalt thou labor, six days shalt thou labor, because God in, in six days created the heavens and the earth. Well, the children of Israel had just for 400 years been slaves in Egypt and were involved in a 10-day cycle of a work week. This was not God's pattern. Uh, You you can study in history, the Romans later tried to implement a 10-day work week cycle. It just doesn't work. Psychologically, it doesn't work. Physically, it doesn't work. God has set the pattern for us. God has set the example for us. In what our work is to be, what our work is to look like, the scheduling of our work. Six days shalt thou labor. And then the Lord has a great gift to us, has, has given us the Lord's day. Set aside where we're freed from work. 
we're not bound by the encumbrances of a job. We, we come away from that to rest and, and to seek him in a more special and, and specific way. So God is, is our example in work. But if we come to the New Testament, I want you to see in the New Testament that Jesus is an example for us in our work. Now, Jesus is God. I'm not at all trying to make some distinction between God and Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh. But Jesus in the New Testament is an example for us. Turn with me to Mark chapter 6. Would you look at Mark 6? So Christ was preaching here in Nazareth. And, and as he was preaching, the people were really quite astonished with what he was saying. And they didn't really believe what he was saying. But look what we read in Mark 6 and verse 3. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and so on? But is not this the carpenter? Who, who is this guy? We, we, we've seen him around town before. We know who this is. This is the carpenter. Everyone in town knew him as the carpenter. I don't mean to be flippant at all in saying it this way, but everybody knew what Jesus did for a living. Jesus had a job. He was a carpenter. You know, we read about Christ when he's born. And, and, and just a, a toddler as the wise men come to visit him. We read an episode when Jesus is 12 years old and his parents leave him in the temple there and he's involved in the work that his father had given him to do and was there in the temple. But then from 12... To 30, Jesus is not mentioned again until it, it comes to Jesus being about 30 years old, and that's when Jesus was baptized. Have you ever thought, what in the world was he doing from the time he was 12 to when he was 30? Well, he was a carpenter. He, he, was, he was working. He had a job. He, he built things. He helped people. He was a worker. And I would submit to you, Jesus was not, again... Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying, and I'm not trying to be flippant in any way. But Jesus did not just sit around doing nothing. He wasn't living in his parents' basement until he turned 30, waiting for his public ministry to unfold. Right? He, he, he worked. He had a job. As our Redeemer, he worked, obviously. I'll read some verses to you. John five seventeen. Jesus answered them, My Father worketh hitherto. And I work. Now in that, he's not talking about his carpentry work, obviously. He's talking about this work of redemption. This, this job that the Father had given him to do. John 5, 36. But I have greater witness than that of John, John the Baptist. For the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do bear witness of me, that the Father hath sent me. And so he was engaged in this work. This was that work that Isaiah prophesied about, uh, of him going through and healing the sick and, and healing the blind and, and giving the lame power to walk again and, and preaching and teaching. That was the work that God had given him to do, that he, he was engaged in. John 9, 4, I must work the works of him that sent me, while it is day, the night cometh, when no man can work. He was diligent about his work. He knew that in the 
the job, the, the work that God had given him to do, that, that there would be a finish to that. In his high priestly prayer, he even prays, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work that thou gavest me to do. And so Jesus was involved in this work, this work of rendering perfect obedience to the Father, this work of earning for his people a perfect righteousness, this work of saving his people from their sins. And his work was finished. That work of redemption was finished, and now he is seated at the right hand of the Father. It's interesting, if you go back to the Old Testament and you study the tabernacle, and the work of the priests in the tabernacle. There, there was the altar, there was a labor, and then there was that building structure separated into two rooms. In the one was the altar of incense, there was the showbread, there was the candlestick, and then in that most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant. And you'll get all those pieces of, of furniture that were involved in the the sacrimonial worship of the nation of Israel, and you find one glaring piece of furniture that was missing in all of that. There was no chair. There was no place for the priest to sit down. There, There was no place for the Old Testament priest to rest. And I think that's significant because that Old Testament priest's work was never done. That work was never finished. But Christ... When Christ worked, and when Christ accomplished that work, what did he do? He ascended to the Father, and where is he now? He is seated at the right hand of the Father. Because that work of redemption that he was given to do, that work is finished. And he's seated there at the right hand of the Father. A finished work, a a complete, a perfect work for our redemption. But I would submit he continues to work because he ever lives to intercede for us. And so, so now he is engaged in that work of intercession on our behalf. So God the Father works. We see Jesus working, and you might not be surprised at point three. The Holy Spirit is an example of work for us as well. When Christ, just, just shortly before Christ went to the cross, John 14, he tells his disciples, but the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things. So the Holy Spirit is engaged in work. That work of of leading us, that work of teaching us, that work of spiritually protecting us, that work of comforting us, that work of encouraging us, that work of convicting us of sin. The Holy Spirit is constantly engaged in work. God's a worker. And I would submit to you from that that if if we are to be godly, then we are to be workers. We are to be engaged in whatever God has called us to do. Laziness is ungodliness because it does not follow the example that God has set for us by his own actions. God is a worker and we are to work and we are not to be lazy. We are not to be slothful. Uh, the Proverbs over and over condemns sloth. It condemns that inactivity. It encourages work. And so we see, first of all, the example of work. But I want to, to move on, secondly, to consider the necessity of work. 
For that, I want you to turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 2, the necessity of work. You might even hear that phrase and think to yourself, well, yeah, work's a necessary evil. I've got to pay the mortgage. I've got to buy groceries. I've got to keep the light bill paid. And so there's no other way to do this. I just have to work, and I hate it. I, I don't want to do this. And it's just this necessary evil because you need some money so that you can pay for the things you want. Well, you would be wrong in that assessment because work is not evil, and work never has been. Many are shocked to learn that God instituted work and commanded Adam and Eve to work before the fall. And so in Genesis 2, in verse number 15, we see part of the necessity of work in that work is part of the original creation mandate. Look at Genesis 2.15. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. To dress it and to keep it. Adam was a gardener. Adam worked. Before the fall, he was commanded to do this. And God gave Adam dominion over the creatures. God gave Adam the responsibility of naming all the animals. It was part of his dominion, that dominion creation mandate. But the word dress that we have there, that word dress in Genesis 2 and verse number 15, is the primary Old Testament word that is translated as work. It occurs just slightly over 700 times, that particular verb in, in the Hebrew. It's the primary word for work. And so he told Adam, work the garden. Keep the garden. Maintain this that I have created. And so Adam was to work and to bring forth fruit from the ground. And before the fall, Adam and Eve's work was very easy. Before the fall, Adam and Eve's work had no resistance. There there were no thorns and thistles to make it hard. The ground wasn't hard and clumpy to, to make it difficult to till up this ground. Work was easy. There was no sweat in work. There was no opposition to their work. But it was work. Nonetheless, it was work. Work is necessary, first of all, because God has ordained it. God has commanded it to be done. But then after the fall, man is still required to work. Turn maybe on the other side of the page or turn a page in your Bible to Genesis 3. And look at what we have here, Genesis 3, 23. This is after the fall. And so God has already spoke to the serpent. He's already condemned the serpent. He's already executed judgment there. And he speaks to to Adam and Eve, and he he says, Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. Now that word till that we have in Genesis 3.23 is the exact same Hebrew word that is in Genesis 2.15 where he's commanded to dress it. So he's commanded to work. And he's commanded after the fall to do the same job. He has the same responsibilities. Only now there is a big difference. Only now it's going to be hard. 
Only now, because of his sinfulness, the ground has been cursed. Now there will be weeds. Now there will be thorns. Now there will be clumpy ground. Now it will be hard. Now there will be sweat. Now there will be opposition. And now there will be an attitude in Adam that says, I hate this. I don't want to do this anymore. I want to get out of this. Adam never wanted to get out of work before the fall. But that was part of his sin. And then, after the fall even, we we continue reading a few more verses in the scriptures, and we find Adam and Eve have, have children, and their children are identified by the kind of work they do. Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain was a tiller of the ground. Their, their children are identified by their job. You, you keep reading and, and you come to more descendants. Uh, Jabel, the father of such as dwell in tents and such as have cattle. So he was a rancher. Jubal is the father of all such who handle the harp and the organ. He was a magician. Uh, not magician. Musician, sorry. Uh, Cain. he was an instructor of every artificer in brass and iron. He was an iron worker. He was a metalsmith. And we see work. We see jobs all through the scriptures. The bottom line here is that work is necessary because God has commanded his people to work. He's commanded us to work before the fall and after the fall. And to not work is to disobey God's command. So the necessity of work. But I want to move on third to see something of the purpose of work. Why? The purpose of work. Why is it that God has commanded us and ordained us to work? Well, we can have a little bit of overlap and say, well, the purpose of our work is to follow God's example. And the purpose of our work is to obey God's commandment. That, that, those are two obvious things, I think, just right off the bat. But if we look at the purpose of work, we see, first of all, that it's the way that God has ordained for us to provide for our families. That's one of the, the primary purposes that God has given to us in our work. Uh, turn over to Second Thessalonians 3. Uh, this is a verse that some of you, just as you're thinking as I'm talking, you might have already had rattled around in your brain and, and thinking, well, what does the Bible say about work? And, and you might be thinking of, of some verses, and this one is one that might have come to mind. You might not have known the reference, but you may have already thought these words. Second Thessalonians 3 and verse 10, This we command you that if any would not work, neither should he eat. And then we read in Proverbs 19.15, The idle soul shall suffer hunger. And so one of the purposes that God has given in our work is to be able to provide for our families. If you are able-bodied and God has given you strength and ability to work, then you are to work to provide for the needs of your family. Are there extenuating circumstances? Are there exceptions to that? Obviously. If, if there are people with disabilities or handicaps in some way, or some temporary loss even for some time, of course, exempt from work for a time. And, and we understand that. We'll address part of that uh, later on this morning. But if you're able-bodied and God has given you ability and strength, you're going to be engaged in work. Now, this is the structure generally that God has ordained, that a man's main 
primary responsibility is to work outside the home to earn a wage to provide for his family. I believe that's God's ordinary structure of things. I also believe it is God's ordinary structure of things that the wife, her main responsibility is to work in the home, to take care of the needs that are there in the home and with the children, and to provide for the needs of her family in that way. Now, does that mean that a man never does housework? No. You need to help your wife, and you need to do housework. But does that also mean that a woman is, is never justified in working outside the home? No, I don't think that's what the Bible teaches either. If you look at the Proverbs 31 woman, she was buying and selling property. She was doing all sorts of, of work that she would have to leave her home to be engaged in. So I don't think the Bible condemns that, or I don't think we can make any super hard and fast rules of a man must work at home. This is a side note in I'm not supposed to give my opinion in a sermon. I'm not a fan of the stay-at-home dad. If you're a stay-at-home dad, uh, I don't mean to offend you. I don't think that's a thing. I think a man is to work. A woman is to stay at home. That's my opinion. Um, back to the sermon. Enough of my opinion. I'm speaking generally of God's design, what God has ordained, what we read in Scripture, what we find in Scripture, what we find in the history of the church. Work is what God has given for us to provide for our families. But also, if we come back to Ephesians chapter 4, work is a way to avoid temptation. Look at what Ephesians 4.28 says. Let him that stole, steal no more. Well, if you're a thief, stop. Okay, don't steal anymore. Stop. But instead of stealing, here's what God has given you to replace that. Here's what God has given you to replace that temptation to sin. The him that stole steal no war, but rather, but instead, let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good. Legitimate work. There's work that's not legitimate. There's work that is evil. There, there's work that the, by the nature of what it is, it is wicked. And that's not what this is talking about. This is engaged in lawful employment, lawful, God-glorifying work. Work. The, bib the biblical remedy for stealing is to go to work, to earn your own wage, to provide for your, your own family. Before the fall, as I said just a moment ago, there was never a temptation to get out of work. It's our sinfulness that leads to our laziness, that makes us want to avoid work, to do as little of it as possible. That's the result of sin. That's the result of the fall. We want the easiest way out. So work is something that God has given to us to avoid temptation. But I want you to see a third purpose of work, and that is something I alluded to earlier, and that is work is an act of worship to God. Now, that's a big statement. That's a big thing to say, and, and that, even saying that requires some defense because some would, would pull back at that and say, you know, I'm an accountant. I stare at spreadsheets all day. How in the world is that worshiping God? 
I clean toilets for a living. How is that worship to God? I do landscaping. I work at a bank. I do this, that, or the other thing. How is that worship? Now, you take a a man like Mr. Bannister here, whose job is a preacher. And anybody can say, well, obviously his work is worship. I mean, he, he reads his Bible and studies all day. He prays for the sick all day. He, he, he visits people all day. He counsels. And of course, his work is worship. But I'm cooking dinner. And I'm cleaning dishes. And I'm changing diapers. And I'm sweeping floors. And I'm pushing a vacuum. And how is that worship? Well, turn to Ephesians 6. You already know this passage but I think it's valuable for us to actually look at it in our Bibles. Ephesians 6, starting verse 5. Paul's already addressed husbands and wives. Beginning of chapter 6, he addresses the children, be obedient to your parents. And then in verse 5, he addresses the workers, servants, workers. Be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in singleness of your heart as unto Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men. Now he's speaking to doulases. He's talking to slaves. He's talking to, to bond servants. And he tells these bond servants, when when your master tells you to do something, don't do it with eye service. Don't do it looking over your shoulder to see if the boss is watching. And when the boss is watching, make sure you do a really good job. And when the boss isn't looking, you can kind of let it slide a little bit. No, he, he says, don't do that at all. You do your work. You do your labor because God is watching. You, you render your service to your earthly master as if you were working for God himself. So many of these would have been out picking barley. You pick barley to the glory of God. They were threshing flax. You thresh flax to the glory of God. They were herding sheep to the glory of God. They, they were doing the mundane the, the, the slave tasks of, of the Roman Empire. For the glory of God you do these things. Because you're serving the God of heaven. Regardless of what you're engaged in. You're serving the God of heaven. I want you to look at another thing. This will take a little bit of time, but it's, again, it's, it's worth it for us to actually look at it in Scripture. You've already looked at the verse in Genesis 2.15. I want you to turn to Exodus 3 and verse 12. Exodus 3 and verse 12. I'll just simply remind you what Genesis 2.15 says. It says, And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And that word dress, you remember, I told you was the main Old Testament word, that, that main Hebrew verb that is translated as work. Exodus 3 and verse 12, some context. This is the burning bush. 
the Lord is speaking to Moses at the burning bush. And the Lord said to Moses, verse 12, Certainly I will be with thee, and this shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, ye shall serve God upon this mountain. That word serve in Exodus 3 and verse 12 is the same word that God has commanded Adam to do in the garden to dress it, to work it, to serve it. It's interesting that this Hebrew word I told you, Yavav, the Hebrew word, is the same word that's translated as work and in the Old Testament translated as worship. It's the same word. Our work is an act of service to God. It's an act of worship. It's, it's a manifestation of your obedience to the God of heaven when you render service. We work for the Lord. As we're working for men, as we're self-employed, working for ourselves, we're working before the Lord. We're his servants. Regardless of what vocation you are engaged in, even if it's at home, even if it's the housewife, the exalted, most difficult job that there is, taking care of the home, you're involved in worship for the Lord. This changes how you view Monday morning, does it not? This puts a whole different spin, a whole different perspective on what Monday morning is to be for the believer. Because when you show up, you're showing up at your accounting job, at your auto mechanic job, as a nurse, as a teacher, as a housewife. You're showing up Monday ready to serve the Lord. Because that's what you're engaged in. That's what you're called to do. Pastor Bannister is not the only servant of the Lord in this church. You are all servants of of the living God, doing work as if we're doing it for, for God himself. But I want to show you one last thing, and that is the reward of work. The reward of work. There might be times that you work for free. I think those should be relatively few. But you might donate your time, work for free. But one of the rewards for work is, is daily provision. This is one of the purposes of work, to provide for your family. And you work, you get a reward at the end of the week, the end of the month, whenever you get paid. You, you get paid. You might object and, and say that, well, am I not supposed to just trust the Lord for my daily provision? Well, of course you are. But in trusting the Lord, the Lord has given you ability and good sense to go to work and, and to do your job. And to do a good job. And to do a good job so that you add value to your company that you work for. So your employer sees the value that you're bringing to this company. And they say, I want to reward that hard work and, and pay. You know, but but never, never miss the truth of Scripture. Deuteronomy 8.18 But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth. It's God who enables you. 
It's God who's given you the ability to work with your hands. It's God who's given you a good mind with numbers. It's it's God who's given you the ability to understand how things are built and made and create as an engineer. It's God who's given the ability to do that. It's God who has provided you with the resources. Whether you make $5 an hour or you make $500 an hour, it's, it's God's provision to you. It's God's reward. Temporal, sure, but it's God's reward for your labor. It's God's reward for your work. You know, do we not pray in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread? To pray, give us this day our daily bread, cannot lead you to laziness. Cannot lead you to sit back and, well, God's going to give me all I need. Of course God's going to give you all you need, but that's not the point. Give us this day our daily bread. We trust God for provision, obviously, but the laborer is worthy of his hire. And there's a reward in our work. We receive. But I want to show you a second reward of work, and that is the reward of charity. Now, you might pause here just a moment and think that I'm confused But I'm going to tell you, no, you're confused. You might think, well, if I'm working and I'm getting paid, then I don't need charity. I don't don't need that because I work. I mean, I have a job and I pay for my own stuff. Well, I would submit to you, you need charity more than you realize. You don't need it to be given, but you need to give it. You need to give it. Look at Ephesians 4.28 again. Let him that stole steal no more. But instead, let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good. Why? That he might have to give to him that needeth. I don't think Ephesians 4.28 is talking about your tithe. I think your tithe is something that's different than this. Your tithe is not charity. I know in our taxes, we, you know, charitable contributions and, you know, we use that kind of language, but your tithe is not charity. Your, your tithe to your local church is, is part of God's economic system. It's, it's what God has ordained to, to perpetuate the earthly work of the ministry and, and the advancement of the kingdom of God to, to pay a minister to pay for electricity, to pay for heating and air, to pay for carpet and chairs and a place to meet and gather. So God's economy is, is tithing. This is not a sermon on tithing, but an offering, charity. This is something that is given above, separate from a tithe. And so I've heard talk this morning of this glass jar. Don't put your tithe in the glass jar. That's an offering. Your tithe is, is the local church. And I don't get all hung up on 10% and all that business. That's fine. Do 10%. Get out your calculator and figure out what you write your check for. I don't think God is wanting you to get a calculator out on the first of the month to write your check. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. And whatever your tithe to your church. But that's different than your offering. That's different than... Than, than what this verse, I believe, is talking about with, with charity to the missionaries, 
to the special needs that are presented that are above that that you already give to the Lord. But work enables you to be charitable. That's what we read here in Ephesians. Labor with your hands, the thing that's good, so that you used to be a thief. You used to steal. And now you've gone to the other side of that. And now you're giving to people that are less fortunate than you are. You're giving to people that have great needs. The language here, I understand, overlaps something with the purpose of work. One of the purposes that God has in our work is that we're enabled to be charitable and to help other people and and give. But I view this as a reward. I I view this as something that God rewards us with. If you're discontent with your circumstances, if you never have enough, you always have to have the latest and greatest of this, that, or the other thing that comes out and buy it as soon as it hits the store shelves and you're you're running up debt and everything else for the things that you want, then what you're doing is you're just simply putting yourself in bondage. You're just tying yourself up in bondage because you're strapped and you can't do this because you got money going to Capital One to build football stadiums and to Bank of America to build baseball fields and you know, your money's going out, out, out. And you can't do what God has said is a blessing for you to be able to do. You work to provide for your family and to be able to help and, and give to others. You're preventing yourself. If, if you're in this bondage, you're preventing yourself to be able to be obedient to the Lord in, in charity. Be content with what you have. Be content with where you are. Be content with your wage. Not that you can never ask for a raise, obviously not. But be content. Learn contentment. Learn, learn to avoid being the debtor uh, that is in bondage. He's a servant to the lender. There's, there's almost no better feeling in the world than being able to give to someone who you know has no ability at all to ever pay you back and not, ex- not expect anything back. That'll make you happier than you've been in a long time. But work to be able to do such a thing. That's one of the rewards that God has built into our work that we're able to give. We're able to help other people. We're able to be generous to others. Martin Luther and the reformers, as I said earlier, elevated work to a spiritual level. Uh, They taught that all work was sacred as it was rendered to the Lord, as it was rendered in his service this puts an entirely different perspective on our labor, on our work, on our Monday mornings. We can say that the workplace, as Calvin did, is one of the primary places that our faith becomes action. Our faith is put on display for other people to see. It's a a place to show co-workers and customers the love of Christ. What God has done for me let me show you. I need to tell you, but I need to tell you, but let me show you what God has done for me. 
Your faith and love for Christ governs how you treat your customers. It governs how you set your prices if you're in charge of such a thing. It it governs how you respond to your boss. If you're a boss, it governs how you treat your employees, how how you compensate your employees, the care and compassion you have for those that are under you. If you're a supervisor or a manager, If you're an employee, it it governs your diligence and the quality of the work that you try to do every day. You're trying to do your best because you're working for the God of heaven. Work's important and work is necessary. But I want to challenge you all this morning to look at work in a different way. Don't look at it as just a necessary evil so that you can get your groceries and pay your power bill and send your mortgage payment in. But view work as one of God's gifts to you to enable you to better serve him here and to help others who are in need and by that show them the love of Christ to their souls. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Father, we do... Thank you this morning for your word and how you have demonstrated to us and and shown us in the scriptures what you require of us. We were very careful to sing that hymn and, and emphasize that point. It's not what these hands have done that can save our souls. Our working is is not an act of merit for our salvation and we trust Christ alone for that work but you've put us here to labor to provide for our families we thank you for the way that you are so generous to us you lavish us with good things and we pray that you would enable us to mimic that generous heart to those that we come in contact with and Love the brethren in this way. We pray that you'll bless the rest of our Lord's Day, a day in your presence. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.